One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was 2.20 p.m. on July 11, 1979, in the parking lot outside the Dadeland Mall. The Florida heat was stifling. Drug lord Herman Jimenez Paneso was eager to get inside. Neither he nor his bodyguard, Juan Carlos Hernandez, were concerned by the white van parked outside the entrance to the mall. The side of the van read, Happy Time Complete Party Supply. If they thought to look closer, they would have noticed that the other side didn't match, and the van's engine was running. But they didn't look. So Jimenez and Hernandez walked to the Crown Liquor Store inside the mall. Jimenez pointed to a bottle on the shelf, and Hernandez went to get it for him. That's when two men came in, brandishing guns. The first pointed a handgun at Jimenez and shot off four rounds into his face. The second brought out a machine pistol and shot Hernandez as he tried to run. He fired an entire clip wounding the store clerk. The two assassins dropped their guns, left the mall, and hopped in the back of the Happy Time Complete Party Supply van. They resupplied and fired wildly out the back to cover their tracks. They wounded several people. They damaged several cars. They destroyed parts of the mall. And by the time they tore out of the parking lot, it was 2.23 p.m barely three minutes after they first shot Jimenez. When the cops found the truck, it was abandoned on the side of the road, with keys still in the ignition. It was stuffed full of guns, ammo, and bulletproof vests. Both the hit and the abandoned war wagon sent a message, don't mess with us. Because when Griselda Blanco wanted to send a message, she didn't use words, she used lead. Hi, I'm Claire Delamar. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals, 
Today, we're continuing our deep dive into the life of Griselda Blanco, the Colombian drug lord known as the cocaine godmother. She operated throughout the 1970s and 80s, supplying cocaine to the drug-starved United States market and competing with her one-time protege, Pablo Escobar. She supposedly ordered at least 200 hits over the course of her career, making her one of the bloodiest drug lords of her time. Before we dive in, we'd like to ask you a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter as at Parcast Network. In our last episode, we covered Griselda Blanco's childhood in war-torn Colombia, her first murder at age 11, and her rise in the cocaine business in Medellin. She was the first drug lord to set up a cocaine operation between Colombia and the United States in the early 1970s, using female drug mules to transport product in secret compartments hidden in specialty lingerie. Griselda invented the motorcycle execution after finding that cars were too susceptible to traffic jams, and this quickly became the favored method of murder among the Colombian drug lords. But after the DEA came on the scene in 1973 and started to break up Griselda's business through Operation Banshee, she and her husband, Alberto Bravo, were forced to flee New York in 1975. Back in Colombia, Griselda trained and then betrayed Pablo Escobar, who chased her out of her hometown of Medellin. Our last episode ended with a shootout outside a nightclub in Bogota in 1975 between Griselda and her husband, Alberto Bravo. She walked away from it with only a small bullet wound. Bravo wasn't so lucky. He died that night from his wounds. Which meant that their cocaine empire was now her cocaine empire. Griselda continued to run her business with very little changes in the day-to-day operations. But remaining in Colombia put her at the mercy of Pablo Escobar, whose power and influence grew every day. So she found another husband in 1976, one whose fearsome reputation she hoped would hold Pablo's Medellin cartel at bay. This man was Dario Sepulveda, a bank robber and the brother of one of Griselda's favorite hitmen. There's not a lot of information about Dario and Griselda's relationship, but it's likely that he was younger than she was by at least a couple of years. Together, they had a son, Griselda's last child, in August of 1978. As we mentioned in the previous episode, Griselda took a liking to the classic gangster film, The Godfather. And her nickname amongst all of her employees was La Madrina, or The Godmother. So it's not that surprising that she named her son Michael Corleone Sepulveda, after the youngest son of the titular godfather. It's worth noting that in the film, Michael Corleone stays away from the family business for as long as he can before taking his father's place as the head of the crime family. Perhaps Griselda wanted to signify her desire to pass on her cocaine empire to her youngest son. However, she wasn't going to do it from Colombia. 
Shortly after Michael's birth in 1978, Griselda's forgers doctored some paperwork that gave her a new name and a new nationality that would allow her to sneak back into the United States, even with the warrant out for her arrest. Griselda, Sepulveda, and Michael entered the United States with Venezuelan passports. They settled in Miami, Florida, which had become the United States' unofficial port of entry for Colombian cocaine. Griselda already had deep business ties to the area, so it made sense for her to continue running her drug cartel out of Miami. But Griselda was dismayed to find that her status had plummeted. Pablo Escobar and his Medellin cartel were now in charge of the vast majority of cocaine distribution in the United States. They didn't just control a Medellin airport. They had their own private airstrip and a fleet of planes at the ready. Griselda couldn't compete, not with international distribution. So instead of being on top of the game, she was now one of many local distributors. Before we start to delve into Griselda's psychology, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. A psychology paper from Business Horizons discussed the psychological toll that a demotion at work can have on worker confidence, citing that demotees felt as though it was a demoralizing event from which they feared they might never recover. Griselda may have had something of an identity crisis. If she wasn't the godmother of the cocaine industry, what was she? Who was she? One thing was certain, though. Griselda wasn't content to be a face lost in the crowd. If there was one thing she learned through her cocaine escapades, it was how to make herself stand out. Mm, usually through either innovation or murder, occasionally through both. Griselda and the Sepulvedas, husband Dario and gunman Paco, stood out through murder. Lots of murder. The business in Miami featured a lot of local distributors, all competing to buy kilos of cocaine from members of Medellin cartel at the lowest prices. Then they would either sell them to users and addicts in Miami, or further distribute them to sellers in New York, Los Angeles, or other major U.S. cities. So taking out the competition, or someone who stole kilos of cocaine you had already paid for, or someone you owed money for kilos you had already sold, all made perfect business sense. One such famous example was the 1979 Dadeland Mall Massacre. We opened the podcast with a description of those events, where drug lord Jimenez and his bodyguard Hernandez lost their lives in a wave of bullets. The officers who arrived on the scene described their bodies as resembling Swiss cheese. But we didn't get into why, only how. There were two factors at play. One, favored hitman Paco Sepulveda's girlfriend was supposedly cheating on him with Jimenez. Two, Griselda owed Jimenez money for 40 kilos of cocaine, and she didn't feel like paying. So for this, Jimenez had to die. Though it doesn't explain why Jimenez's execution needed to be so public. Jimenez may have wronged Paco Sepulveda, but he hadn't wronged Griselda. They were in business together and things were going well, from what I can tell. 
It's an escalation from anything else that the cartels were doing at the time in Miami. This was the first time the murder of a rival was so public and put so many civilians at risk. It was a reckless move on Griselda's part, one that raised the expectation of the level of violence present in a gang execution. So it introduced a new normal, sort of like the Colombian Civil War did during Griselda's childhood. It's similar, but not the same. As a child, Griselda was at the mercy of a larger political system that she couldn't affect. She didn't have any control over the events surrounding her. As an adult, especially one with power over the situation at hand, she could have chosen to de-escalate or even to retaliate appropriately. Introducing this new baseline of violence puts her on the same level as the paramilitary groups of her youth. That's a pretty chilling analysis. I'd say the comparison is apt. She helped usher in a new era where civilian casualties became acceptable losses and ushered in a new era of war, one where Miami was the battlefield. It was the Miami Drug War. And many point to the Dadeland Mall Massacre as its first battle. Griselda was winning. But the outcome of the first battle can't accurately predict the outcome of the war. And Griselda's winning streak would soon come to an end. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now the story continues. The wake of the Dayland Mall massacre in 1979 is when police and newspapers started referring to the Colombian drug lords and their gangs as cocaine cowboys. Miami morphed into one of the most dangerous cities in the United States practically overnight. As a result of the escalating drug wars, Miami regularly reported around 500 homicides a year throughout the 1980s, earning Miami the nickname the murder capital of the United States. In 1980, Cuba allowed refugees to leave peacefully for the first time via the Mariel port. Many of these 125,000 Marielitos ended up in Miami, with plenty of them looking for work. And just over 2,500 of them were classified violent criminals, some of whom had no compunctions about joining up with Griselda's pistoleros. Her newly augmented forces were able to take on both the people who owed her money and the people to whom she owed money. She also used them to resolve family matters. If anyone messed with her sons, 
they were killed. The two eldest boys, Dixon and Uber, now both in their 20s, were both happily employed in their mother's business by this point in 1980. Dixon was reputed to be one of Griselda's hitmen, proficient with her motorcycle executions. He was even rumored to be one of the men in the Happy Time Complete Party Supply truck at the Dadeland Mall shootout. Uber seems to have been involved on the distribution side of things. Oswaldo was a teenager, four years younger than Uber, six years younger than Dixon, but he started operating as a distributor when he was only 15. Even though the Trujillo Blanco boys were adept in the business, their tempers could run hot. And they had a mother who was more than happy to spoil them. Griselda had people killed for such imagined slights as not letting Uber date their daughter or not allowing Oswaldo to sleep at their house. In the same way that Griselda's upbringing in war-torn Colombia may have informed her understanding of violence, her son's upbringing as the children of a violent drug lord may have made them inured to the brutality of their mother's actions. Even Michael, just three years old in 1981, wasn't immune to this. Jorge Ayala, one of Griselda's assassins, known as Rivi, remembered discussing a contract killing with Griselda in front of her toddler son. Some sources say he even carried it out in front of Michael. Michael later recalled that the first time someone tried to kidnap him was when he was four years old, around 1982. Perhaps the kidnapping he remembered was the attempt by Oscar Pedrajita, one of Griselda's former distributors. He stole one of Griselda's sons away from her. We don't know which one, but it was likely Michael, and demanded a $5 million ransom for his safe return. To our knowledge, this was the first time that Griselda was on the opposite side of the table in a kidnapping case. Up until now, she had always been the one arranging the kidnapping. So she knew what the kidnappers were capable of doing to her son. According to a paper in the 2006 edition of Violence and Victims, the distress caused by a kidnapped child can cause a parent to report higher rates of clinical depression, loneliness, isolation, and impaired interpersonal relationships. Even as a drug lord long accustomed to violence, this must have been a terrifying time for Griselda as a mother, especially considering that she barely let Michael leave her side. She was willing to do whatever it took to get her child back, and opted to pay part of the ransom Pedrajita demanded of her. Her child was returned to her, and life seemed to go on from there. But this wasn't over. Griselda couldn't allow someone to live who had threatened her child. She chose to be patient, biding her time. One day, later in 1982, she read in the obituary section of the newspaper that Pedrajita's son had just passed away. And it listed the address of the church where the service would be held. Most people send flowers. Griselda sent a hitman. Pedrajita was killed via machine gun at his own son's wake in front of the other mourners. As you can see, tensions between members of the same gang ran high, but friction between rival Colombian gangs ran even higher, often ending in complicated sequences of revenge. 
Gang number one has to avenge the death of a member at the hands of gang number two with a brutal attack, which leaves gang number two with a need to retaliate against gang number one, and so on. An Association of Psychological Sciences article titled The Complicated Psychology of Revenge states that, quote, Instead of delivering justice, revenge often creates only a cycle of retaliation, in part because one person's moral equilibrium rarely aligns with another's, end quote. Small or imagined slights can take on enormous significance within the mind of the wronged party. Griselda in particular became known in the Miami scene for her disproportionate responses to the wrongs done to her by other drug lords. She once bombed the house of a rival drug lord's father, for example, when no one had gone after her family. These kinds of disproportionate responses could potentially signal a tendency toward grandiosity or an inflated sense of self-superiority. Grandiosity can manifest as a disregard for the lives of others. They aren't important. One particularly heinous example of this involved a two-year-old who got caught in the crossfire of one of Griselda's executions. Jesus Castro, one of Griselda's former employees, got into an argument with Griselda's son, Oswaldo, in 1982 and kicked Oswaldo out of his house. So Griselda decided that his time was up. Revi hopped on a motorcycle armed with an assault rifle and followed Castro's car onto the highway. He opened fire and sped off, confident that the job was done. But he was wrong. Revi didn't hit Castro. Johnny, Castro's two-year-old son, was asleep with his head resting on his father's shoulder. Castro leaned forward, and Johnny got shot twice in the head. Griselda didn't mind. Revi later said, quote, At first she was real mad, because we missed the father. But when she heard we had gotten the son by accident, she said she was glad that they were even, end quote. I'm going to repeat that because this is what's incredible about the way Griselda's mind worked. A former employee kicked her grown son out of his house and killing the offender's innocent two-year-old son was getting even. She believed that what she did to his son was equal, somehow, to what he had done to hers, tit for tat. Because Castro was wanted by the police, he wasn't able to go to them for justice. But he did give them his son's body, anonymously, to see if there was anything they could do. The New York Times reported that the body of Johnny Castro was found Monday, bathed, clothed, adorned with roses, and wrapped in sheets. This wasn't the last Griselda would hear of little Johnny Castro. In the meantime, though, she was haunted by a different missing little boy, her five-year-old son, Michael. In 1983, Griselda and Michael's father, Dario Sepulveda, were in the middle of an acrimonious split after Griselda caught Dario cheating on her with a topless dancer. They fought constantly over who would gain custody of Michael, but one day in 1983, Dario decided to simply take his son and flew back with him to Colombia. A study from the California Child Abduction Task Force says that, quote, 
The typical motivation for family abduction is power, control, and revenge. In fact, family abduction is really a form of family violence. Some abductors may believe they're rescuing the child, but rarely do they resort to legal approaches for resolution. So Dario may have taken Michael because he was trying to get back at Griselda, not out of any love for his son. It's hard to say for sure. Dario may have felt like he was rescuing Michael from a bad situation, but it wasn't as though Dario would be able to offer him anything better. Dario was a bank robber. I suppose that it's also not likely that Dario would have tried anything through the legal system, as he was a criminal himself. It's likely that he didn't trust the legal system, since he existed outside of it. There was only one system that he knew, and that's what he was counting on to keep him and Michael safe. Dario was on good terms with Pablo Escobar and others from Pablo's Medellin cartel, the most powerful force in Medellin in 1983. And he had lots of other friends in Colombia's criminal underworld. He believed that, with their help, he would be able to avoid Griselda's wrath. He was wrong. Griselda, too, wasn't able to go through the usual legal channels that could have helped her get Michael back. So naturally, she hired assassins. According to the Miami New Times, Dario and Michael were driving through Medellin in 1983 when a few cops pulled them over. But they weren't real cops. They opened fire on Dario, killing him while Michael watched in horror from the back seat. It wasn't long before Michael and Griselda reunited in Miami. But they didn't stick around Miami for long. Dario, remember, had been well-liked and had lots of friends. There were a lot of people who would have been happy to avenge his death. Jenny Aaron Smith stated in her Griselda Blanco biography, Cocaine Cowgirls, that it was only weeks before one of Griselda's sisters met her end back in Colombia. Around the same time in 1983, the DEA launched a new operation targeted at Griselda and her business. They called it Operation Los Niños, and they planned to go after Griselda's sons. They tracked Uber, Griselda's second son, to his apartment in Miami. They surveyed the house, hoping to track Uber to Griselda, but a parking attendant let Uber know about the DEA's sting, and he disappeared. The whole family did. We don't know whether Griselda was reacting to the DEA's efforts, or to the threat from her murdered husband Dario's friends looking to avenge his death. But we know that Griselda set up a number of safe houses and left her sons in charge of much of the day-to-day -day aspects of the business in various cities. The Sun Sentinel stated that Dixon was in San Francisco, Uber in Miami, and Oswaldo in Los Angeles. Griselda flitted between the three locations, but spent most of her time around Los Angeles. Together, by the mid-80s, they moved about 2,000 pounds of cocaine every month. The DEA couldn't find them. The trail went cold for the rest of the year. But in 1984, the DEA started working with Jerry Gomez, a former friend of the Blanco family who was willing to make a deal. Gomez tracked Dixon to San Francisco through a mutual friend. He arranged to meet with Dixon and offered to launder some of the Trujillo Blanco cocaine money. 
Dixon made a point of saying that he and his brothers were handling the business now. Griselda was retired. But when Gomez came to the meeting place, a hotel in Los Angeles, it was a disguised Griselda who met him. She handed him a suitcase full of dirty money, needing to be laundered. The DEA watched, but didn't arrest her. They wanted to see how deep the rabbit hole went. But Griselda, perhaps out of paranoia, disappeared again. She still asked Gomez to launder money for her, but called only using payphones and refused to meet with him in person. Some accounts state that, by this point in 1984, Griselda was using cocaine and had been for some time. It's impossible to know when it started, but there's a decent argument for her habit at least having existed by this time. Cocaine is known to cause, among other things, paranoia and restlessness. Griselda's constant movement at this time could be a result of both an unwillingness to sit still and a belief that sitting still would get her killed. And it wasn't just paranoia. People really were after her. The DEA used the payphones that she called from to track Griselda down to Irvine, California. But Griselda abandoned the Irvine house and Gomez entirely and went deeper into hiding. She played up her fake Venezuelan passport and lied to her neighbors about her identity. In 1985, the DEA got a new address from a bust of Colombian drug dealers in Irvine from a stack of electric bills. They discovered the new location to be in Orange County, California, and immediately put it under surveillance. To their surprise, they spotted Michael and Griselda within two days. The DEA rushed into the house, ready to take Griselda into custody immediately. They found her in bed, reading the Bible, with a pistol in her nightstand. They arrested her on the original 1975 drug trafficking charges. Those charges were the reason that she and Alberto Bravo had fled New York a decade ago. The DEA also managed to successfully arrest Oswaldo, Uber, and Dixon in that order. It took them a few months to track the Trujillo Blanco brothers down, but they managed to book them all on the same day. That meant that Michael was all alone. Griselda went up against her decade-old trafficking charges in New York. The judge gave her 20 years and gave each of her boys 12 but all of their sentences were reduced to 10 years. Griselda's fame spread throughout the country for the first time as she began serving her time in a federal prison in California in 1985. She would eventually serve 19 years in jail. Michael, only six years old at the time of Griselda's arrest, stayed with Griselda's first mother-in-law and had access to some of Griselda's wealth that was back in Colombia. He stopped using his middle name Corleone while he was growing up. The documentary Cocaine Cowboys 2 maintains that Griselda stayed in control of her cocaine empire from her prison cell. It would have been around 1991 that she met Charles Cosby, a younger Oakland drug dealer who became Griselda's latest lover. Cosby was in his early 20s, while Griselda was in her late 40s. 
Cosby's account has Griselda sending him enough cocaine in the months after they began their affair to become a millionaire. Apparently, they were able to consummate their relationship by bribing the guards in the prison to look the other way. And when she got jealous of one of Cosby's affairs, she had her men fire warning shots into Cosby's car. Cosby, however, was never the man Griselda cared about the most during her incarceration. As always, the biggest constants in her life were her sons. Dixon, Uber, and Oswaldo were all released from prison by the early 1990s, all serving less than their 10 years. Dixon stayed in the Bay Area for a little while, as he had attained American citizenship. But Uber and Oswaldo were both deported back to Medellin. Oswaldo, as Griselda's son, didn't get along with Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. In 1992, outside a Medellin nightclub, Escobar's men shot Oswaldo twice. He jumped off a balcony trying to get away, but instead fell to his death. Griselda, who had always cherished her sons, must have been devastated. The book When Children Die describes parental reaction to the death of a child as, quote, the death of the parents' future dreams, as well as a profound change in their present roles and functioning, end quote. It's possible that Griselda no longer had a clear view of how she wanted the future of her business to look at this point. It appears that she had set things up to divide evenly between her sons. But now, with Oswaldo dead, her plans had begun to unravel. It's thought that this may have been around the time that Dixon, the oldest son, began abusing cocaine. I'm sure neither Dixon nor Griselda wept at the 1993 news that Pablo Escobar was dead. Mm. But Pablo's death aside, Griselda's luck kept getting worse. In 1994, still serving out her 10-year sentence, Griselda faced murder charges for the first time. She stood accused of being responsible for three deaths, including that of a two-year-old child. Finally, poor little Johnny Castro's death came back to haunt her. And her own best hitman, Jorge Rivi Ayala, was set to testify against her. Griselda was transferred into a Florida jail around 1994 in order to take part in her Miami trial. But Cosby says that Griselda was planning something desperate, a last-ditch attempt to secure her own freedom. The kidnapping of John F. Kennedy Jr. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, 
and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And now back to female criminals. According to Charles Cosby, Griselda's lover, John F. Kennedy Jr. was in danger. The despair Griselda felt over the mounting murder case against her drove her to try and take drastic measures, like kidnapping the son of a former president. Apparently, the plan was that she would trade her freedom for his. She told Cosby of her plan in 1996. The plan didn't come to fruition, but it did convince Cosby that Griselda was too dangerous to continue to fraternize with. He decided then that he, too, would testify against her. The case looked very strong, and the prosecution felt confident that they could secure the death penalty for Griselda. Well, until the prosecution was accused of something ridiculous, and the entire case fell apart. In 1998, according to the Miami Herald, it was discovered that Reeve had engaged in phone sex with secretaries from the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office. The probe revealed that the secretaries had exchanged photographs from Ayala and accepted money and gifts. Cosby claims that he also had relations with a secretary from the state attorney's office around 1998, which meant that the credibility of all of the major witnesses was compromised. That feels like an enormous oversight and an incredibly obvious mistake which is why it doesn't feel like a mistake to me. It's possible that this was all a plan set up by Reeve and Griselda ahead of time, in case they were both arrested and one was set to testify against the other. It's also possible that this was just a mistake made by all parties involved. We'll never know. So instead of getting the death penalty, Griselda was sentenced to 20 years in 1998, with the time she had already served counting towards her sentence. Griselda Blanco would be able to walk free in 2004, only having to serve an additional six years. But those six years would still be filled with tragedy. In 2000, Griselda's second son, Uber, was murdered. The circumstances aren't known, beyond that Uber was shot to death outside of his Medellin gym. Uber had never been as confrontational as Oswaldo and hadn't made as many enemies, so it felt like his death came relatively out of the blue to Griselda. Perhaps at this point, Griselda was able to understand the danger she had put her sons in by exposing them to this dangerous business from such a young age. She might have felt responsible for Uber's death, perhaps even more than Oswaldo's, or she may have realized at this point her responsibility in both of their early demises. Perhaps it was the grief or the responsibility for the death of her two middle sons during her incarceration that led Griselda to focus less on her business when she was released from prison in 2004. She was 61 years old and had spent the last 19 years in jail. Upon release, the United States government deported Griselda. It had been over 25 years since she had last lived in Colombia, and her beloved city of Medellin had started to change. When she had last left her hometown, Medellin was under the control of Pablo Escobar's infamous Medellin cartel. 
and they ran the place like the paramilitary organizations from Griselda's youth. The impoverished hill neighborhoods like Griselda's Barrio Trinidad were isolated from other major parts of the city due to geography, which led to them becoming ghettos for the poor. But by 2004, Escobar had been dead for over a decade, and the city started to heal through a new empowered government. The Medellin metro and cable cars connected the hill neighborhoods to the city proper, allowing for more mobility and less economic segregation. And the murder rate dropped significantly, making the city more inviting to Colombian expats living abroad. The cocaine trade still thrived, of course, but it no longer controlled the whole city in quite the same way. Most of the business was now concentrated in Barrio Trinidad. Even as Medellin healed from old wounds, Griselda's family was still under the influence of the cocaine industry. By 2004, Griselda's eldest son, Dixon, now in his 40s, was in rehab. And Michael, now in his mid-20s, had grown up without her. Griselda still relied on family ties, though, and moved in with her last remaining sibling for a little while. Not that she didn't have somewhere she could live. Much of her fortune had been spent or frozen, but she still had property. But instead of living at one of these properties, she decided to rent them out. It only took her a year or two to earn enough from her rentals that she could purchase a new house for herself. The new house was located in El Poblado, one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Medellin, but she maintained connections to Barrio Trinidad for the rest of her life. She claimed to visit her old neighborhood every day. That didn't stop her, of course, from going by an assumed name among her wealthy neighbors and work staff. They simply referred to her as Doña Gris. No one but the old crowd needed to know who she really was, even if she was out of the drug business. She might have lived out the rest of her life quietly until the 2006 documentary Cocaine Cowboys came out, glorifying her role in the cocaine industry in the 70s and 80s. The documentary and its 2008 sequel, Cocaine Cowboys 2, also pointed an unexpected spotlight at Michael. He began using his middle name, Corleone, again, and according to the book Cocaine Cowgirls, started looking into the rights to Griselda's life story. In 2012, they hadn't settled on a full deal by the time that Griselda met her end. It was mid-afternoon on September 3rd, 2012, and Griselda had just bought a couple hundred dollars worth of meat from her local Barrio Trinidad butcher. A man on a motorcycle rode up to the store and jumped off of his bike. The motorcycle didn't have plates, which should have been an immediate giveaway. He shot twice, hitting Griselda in the shoulder and the head. Then he got back on his bike and left. Griselda was 69 and had been executed by the very method that she had invented roughly 40 years earlier. We don't know who it was who finally killed Griselda Blanco. She had managed to outlive most of her enemies. Those who she didn't outlive were in jail. And most of the major news outlets didn't speculate about who might have done it. But we suspect it must have been someone whose family had been torn apart by her when they were young, seeking revenge. 
Or else, some young up-and-coming drug lord who needed a quick and easy way to prove that they were on top. Griselda Blanco was buried in the same cemetery as Pablo Escobar. Fitting, as they both wreaked havoc on Colombia and the United States in much the same way. Though Pablo Escobar was the one who had scaled the cocaine business up beyond what anyone thought was possible, it was Griselda who had paved the way for Pablo's eventual success. Griselda built that foundation by being the first to deal cocaine directly from Colombia to the United States without the use of mafia middlemen. She is rightly remembered as one of the most violent and volatile drug lords of the 1970s and 80s, and she actively made sure that the Miami drug wars got bloodier by the day. Her loyalty to her sons, though admirable, stands in stark contrast to her willingness to dispose of her husbands and lovers as soon as they went against her. Perhaps all of this could have been avoided had Griselda grown up in a stable home environment, in a neighborhood that wasn't full of crime, in a country that wasn't going through a bloody civil war, with paramilitary groups who were unconcerned with civilian casualties. But of course, that was the Colombia she grew up in, and she wouldn't have been Griselda Blanco without it. And parts of Colombia, Medellin, the Barrio Trinidad, wouldn't have been what they became without her. As her son Michael said in a 2008 interview, quote, She is the mother of four men, and she is the godmother of hundreds of boys. She is the godmother of an entire neighborhood from 1972 on up. And that's why they call her La Madrina. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out next Wednesday. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Dana Shaw and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.